Welcome to the Cowboy Office Show, where you'll experience expert analysis and epic discussion on key pillars of the equine industry, including sports, business, hobby, and the horse lifestyle. Your co-hosts are Jody Brainerd and Brian Dykert, industry veterans with over 120 years combined living the cowboy lifestyle. The Cowboy Office Show will help you get involved, ask more questions, and create change. We'll keep riding for you as together we learn from the ride already ridden, learn to listen better to our horse, and make our industry better for all. Each weekly episode, we'll take a ride around the industry in less time than you can load the truck and trailer. Drop your email at cowboyoffice.com to receive weekly updates and never miss an episode. Settle up as we ride into today's show. Well, hello, horse world. Spring is close, but it feels like the year is marching fast. Mares are falling, breeding season is busy, and the university horse athletic activity is in full swing. Welcome to the Cowboy Office. I'm Brian. And I'm Jody. Uh, welcome. It's going to be a great show today. We're going to talk about the University Equestrian Programs and the horse show industry. We've got some great guests today. Larry Sanchez, he's the head coach for Oklahoma State University. And Laura Brainerd, the western coach for Oklahoma State University. Both of them are from Stillwater, Oklahoma. Uh, home to Oklahoma State University. We're going to talk to these two experts that coach the 2022 NCAA National Champions. First, we'll talk a little bit about Coach Sanchez. Uh, Larry's in his 25th season as a head coach at the University, uh, Oklahoma State University, uh, the equestrian team. His OSU teams have won overall NCEA National Championships, five Western Discipline National Collegiate Championships, eight Big 12 Conference Championships. Prior to his career at OSU, Coach Sanchez was the head coach at New Mexico State University, where his teams won two Western Discipline National Collegiate Championships. Larry's been an AQHA judge for 13 years, also holds an ABRHA card. Uh, he's trained professionally for 30 years with the AQHA. Coach, welcome. We're going to talk a little bit about Laura whom I happen to know pretty well. <laughs> Laura coaches uh, the reigning and horsemanship at Oklahoma State. She is in her fourth season at OSU. Time flies, girl. Laura helped coach the Cowgirls to their first overall national championship title in 2022 uh, and helped garner two Big 12 championship titles. Previously, she coached at Baylor and at the University of Georgia. She graduated from Texas A&M, where she received her undergrad and master's degree she is a third-generation NRHA judge. We're going to talk university horse competition, athletes in both forms, horses and riders, as well as career development. As the next generation comes through university equine athletic programs, coaches welcome, both you, Larry and Laura. Hey, thank you for having us. Thank you. Uh, let me jump in real quick. and we got to tell the audience, Laura, your direct um, link to Jody. So that's one. And then number two, um, because you're his niece. So anyways, and three is congratulations on being the third generation of being an NRHA judge, carrying the Brainerd. So anyways, um, for Thank all you. of us, for all of us, Jody and I, the reigning world is near and dear to us, as you obviously know. And so um, I think that that's very cool. So welcome to both of you. We look forward to it. This is going to be a great show. Um, we want to spend a lot of time talking about the OSU program. Uh, we look forward to you guys 
filling us in a lot because university equine athletics has been, I would call it relatively new to the industry, certainly new in our lifetime hasn't been around for that long. So, you know, amateur university athletics have been around a lot longer. The equines just kind of coming online in a relative term. Um, so we really look forward to that. Okstate.edu. They can get straight to you guys. Um, obviously because you're part of the university, it's a very robust website and all the rest of that. But, uh, to get in touch with either of you as coaches to the equine program okstate.edu and of course they can go through the cowboyoffice.com well great well my partner here he writes some some great scripts and this this first question that he that he's gonna that he throws at me right here reminds me a little bit of washington dc like it's our committee within a subcommittee within another subcommittee but um we're gonna ask you to to explain the difference you know the ncaa the national collegiate athletic association speaks for itself pretty much everyone knows what that is but can you tell us you know the ncea which is the national collegiate equestrian association the ihsa the Intercollegiate Horse Show Association, the IEA, the Interscholastic Equestrian Association. It's like a little mind-boggling to some people that don't aren't familiar with the college equine program. So can you help us with that a little bit? Yeah, um, I'll go ahead and take that one. Um, being that I've, I've been involved with a lot of those organizations uh, for a long time. Um, first of all, I feel obligated to say that when you mentioned earlier, Jody, that we had just come off of winning uh, the national championship, you had said... And a lot of people do this, and it was partly on us because we did when we gave when we named our competition association the National Collegiate Equestrian Association NCEA. It was very similar to NCAA, and our hopes were to one day get to NCAA championship status, which would make our sport an NCAA championship sport. But until we get to forty schools sponsored. Um, right now we're the NCEA and that was the national championship that we won, uh, this last April. Um, but to answer your question, um, the NCEA and the IHSA are two separate collegiate competition formats. Uh, the NCEA is the one that the NCAA recognizes as, um, uh, the collegiate sport of equestrian. Um, and so we abide by all the NCAA rules, just like all the other coaches from other sports. Um, and, uh, we're basically under that umbrella, the IHSA or the intercollegiate horse association has been around since 1968. And that's basically where all collegiate equestrian started. Um, there was an executive director that started it back in 1968 with just his university and a, a neighboring university. And it's grown uh, to over 400 universities that compete annually. Um, but those are predominantly club teams that participate there. They're, they're a club team within their college or their university, uh, may or may not have a coach, um, and uh, but they go and compete within regions and zones across the United States. Uh, but that is different than the NCEA. And then you've got the high school association, which last I heard it was the fastest growing high school athletic association and that's the interscholastic equestrian association or the iea um and that started in one pocket of the country and has grown from coast to coast uh and has has growing numbers of member schools and uh athletes uh each and every year so that's the difference between those three acronyms that you mentioned uh hopefully that was an explanation that you wanted 
Oh, absolutely. Um, so is it like, say, the IHSA and the IEA that we would typically see at NRHA's major events where we'd see like the high school kids competing and or the college kids? Okay. Yes, the IEA um, does. I think here a couple of years ago, I had to forgive me for not knowing the exact time frame, but uh, they started holding their national championship at your big event in the NRHA. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, like I said, when I'd monitor one of those events, I just knew that something was going on. They'd ask for judges and it would be like most of the time, if you're, if you're there as an official, you, you, you don't have time to pay attention. You're more worried about the major event and what's going on there, but it's a, it's a great program. So, all right, cool. Thank you well, very much. I, I, I think getting the equestrian activity organized at the high school level is fascinating. I think it's good for everybody elaborate just a little bit because you said it kind of grew out of one pocket what pocket of the country did it kind of come out of and if it's growing one of the fastest programs at the high school level is there a way that any of us can help precipitate that to grow more what why don't all high schools or the bulk of high schools or i i don't know so do you know well i i know that it started predominantly in the michigan ohio area that's where the iea stemmed from and that's where most of the growth happened and then for whatever reason up in the west uh, northwest up in the washington state uh, area started growing rapidly as well and it's just kind of filled in over the years uh, as the sport has become more popular so um you know right. as far as trying to help grow that sport i think just education is the biggest thing you know as as jody as you're out in the industry uh talking to high school kids you know one question is does your school have an iea program um and uh if they don't then there are people that they can contact and how to get that started at their school uh and it could be just a couple of students uh at their school that are competing and and like the ihsa which is the intercollegiate horse show association they they offer multiple skill levels um for riders to compete so there are opportunities for beginners or some that are new to riding to actually compete against others at their same skill level um, and then they have on up to what they classify as their open riders, which is that top level rider that could be participating in AQHA or NRHA, uh, national events. That's, that's, that's very cool. And so, um, talk a little bit structurally because under NCEA, you guys are all female. And so Bear with me, because the question is, those programs in IHSA, if I say it right, um, is mixed gender, and then you've got discipline activity, but under NCEA, you guys are all female, and you're running a five-woman team on four disciplines, stock seat, reining, hunt seat flat, and equitation over fences, hunt seat, equitation over fences, so those are your four disciplines that you're competing on at a team, correct? Yeah, so the fences, um, the flat, which is a lower level uh, USC after dressage, and then the reining and horsemanship are our four events. And so really from an all women sports team, the reason why we exist at this level is because of Title IX. And Title IX states that the men's number has to equal the women's number in college athletics. And so, you know, we're asked to carry 50 on our roster and 
from program to program, it's different. You know, we even have some programs that are that are bigger, like Baylor and University of Georgia. They might hold up to 65 to 70 because they're asked to because they're going to help balance out, say, the the high football numbers. And so that's really that's really one of the big reasons why we're here is because of Title IX and we can hold so many um, women to to help with that. Got it. So the rest of that question is because then men's, the the boys' sports are so active in the other levels that Title IX allows the women's to come up through the equestrian side, but that's why the men's isn't. Is that correct? Because there are already so many choices for the men. Yeah, here at Oklahoma State, um, we only offer women's soccer as well. And by offering women's soccer and not men's soccer and then equestrian and then our track team carrying a lot of numbers on their women's roster, that's what offsets. Well, here at Oklahoma State, we also have wrestling, which is which is a men's only sport. I know women's wrestling is growing as well. But right now we only offer men's wrestling. But when you have a football roster of 135 on that roster and then you have wrestling, which is 35 to 40, there is no offsetting women's sport for those two sports. Like you've got men's and women's golf, men's and women's tennis, softball, baseball. So there are a lot of offsetting women's sports, but for football and wrestling, we didn't have those. And so OSU offered soccer, women's soccer first, and then they needed more numbers at, to be compliant with Title IX. And so they added women's equestrian and 50 is the number, as Laura said, that they, they put for us to meet. Um, and uh, that allows us to be compliant with Title IX at our institution. Got it. I, I, that's really interesting stuff. Yeah, great explanation. That's like it is, and and you have five that go compete actually. So it's 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 a very competitive sport, right? The equestrian is between the girls. I'm just throwing that out there. Oh yeah, definitely can get competitive. I mean, it's it's hard, and especially coming from an individual sport really an industry where it's just them some of these girls come on to the team that may not have been a part of um, a team before played other sports and so when they come onto the team there's a lot of life lessons um, that they're definitely have to learn because you might have you know for for the reigning squad there might be 12 girls on the reigning squad and there's you know five starting positions so um, it definitely is a balance and it's uh it's not always it's not always easy with with keeping 50 on the roster i i'm assuming so you're changing up like other sports that are team your starting lineup you might be changing them up per meet or per week when you guys go and compete is that a fair assumption and that's primarily what your job is laura is that correct yeah no definitely i mean we we're constantly looking at the girls and it, it's not, it's, you know, and evaluating every single meet. It might be the same lineup. It might change a little bit depending on what forces might be in the draw. Um, and, you know, we, we want the girls individually. We always tell them you're running your own race. It's not, it's, you can't compare yourself to somebody else because these girls come in with different skill sets and different experiences. Some of them come in with a lot of more experience from a training standpoint. Some of them, not so much. And so you have to run your own race. And at the end of the day, us coaches are going to pick who's the most prepared this day to be able to go out and do their job and based on probability too. And so, um, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a challenge. We we're in constant communication as a, as a staff, 
you know, what's the what's the best dynamic for the group? What's best for the team? Um, who's the most prepared to, to put in? And, and it's a, it's a challenge for sure. So how, how large is staff beyond you two is the OSU staff to run this phenomenal team that won the 2022 NCEA championship? Yes. How large is staff? Well, the, uh, the NCAA has set a rule for us that we could have three coaches. Uh, one head and two assistants basically is the what they set. Um, but we also have a director of operations who is in charge of travel, booking the airline tickets, the hotels, um, making reservations for meals while we're on the road, uh, ordering apparel uh, for the girls, you know, for, for workouts, for competitive apparel, those kind of things. Uh, she's, I always say she's the team's favorite because she's ordering the food and the clothes. Um, but uh, without her, it would be just a lot more on the coaches' plates, uh, and we would have less time in the arena with the uh, with the athletes. So having a director of operations that's able to do all those day-to-day things is very helpful. We also have a herd manager. Um, our herd manager, is she stays home when we're on the road recruiting and, and competing. Uh, she's here and, and manages the, the horse herd and, and the feed crew that feeds morning and night and clean stalls and, and does daily turnouts. And, you know, it's a full-time job in itself, I say, to manage a, a group of student workers. Uh, and she does a phenomenal job with that. Um, her name is Sarah, and she does a great job with tacking on a shoe if one comes off, you know, before the shoer can get here. Uh, she's very good at wound management. She's very good at horse behavior and and uh, watching them out in the in the field or in the stall and making sure that they're uh, continually healthy day in and day out. Uh, we also have a GA um, that works directly under our jumping seat coach. Uh, I do, I'm the head coach, I've got a Western coach and I've got a jumping seat coach. Uh, and our GA works directly under our jumping seat coach. And the reason why I've done that is because my background's in the Western and then I have a Western coach is, is in Laura here. Um, and so I feel like there's two of us that are proficient in our area um, and can make some decisions there. But on the jumping seat side, I always felt like that coach didn't have, you know, the support that they needed with uh, somebody who's knowledgeable in that area. So we try to have a GA who is very knowledgeable in the jumping seat discipline as well uh, to help her out and kind of balance things out. Um, and so in addition to that, we have external staff, which helps us keep the girls uh, academically eligible. We have an academic support system and we have a counselor that works with our girls individually about keeping their grades up and making sure that they contact their professors when they're going to be out of town. Uh, we've got an athletic trainer who uh, is at our jumping seat practice when we're actually, you know, doing the fence work. Um, and then she also holds office hours to do whatever therapies uh, physically that the girls will need. Um, and so she also travels with us when we go on the road and make sure that she's keeping the student athletes as healthy as possible. And us coaches can focus more on the competitive side of things. So in a nutshell, that's our staff. Um, but uh, we're so fortunate that we are under that athletic department umbrella that what is provided for all the other sports is also provided for equestrian. Right. That's it. Jody. Could you imagine if we would have had those kinds of resources in our day? Could you imagine? Hey, I was, I was just going to say, it's like it's a good thing this barn is empty because I'd be trying to steal the herd manager. I'd be putting her to work and <laughs> right over here at Big Lake. But you know, that is that's fantastic. That's stuff I you never see when we you know occasionally Amy and I'll go over and we'll we'll have a chance to watch a competition at OSU. It's great great fun to watch. But 
Let me let me ask you something here. You know, in the, by definition, an athlete wants to win, unless it's like Brian and I. When you get to be our age, and we want to go play golf or pickleball or something like that, and then maybe it's maybe it's just more about having a beer and, and not enjoying yourself. And you know, but but you know, when you're talking about college athletics, it's like you know, there's a lot of pressure on you guys too. Not just your athletes, but there's a lot of pressure on you to produce. I mean, you know, the only thing harder than winning a championship is to repeat the championship, you know, to win again. But w- w- tell me a little bit about your about the girls that you're coaching. I mean, is it a is it a win only focus? Uh, you know, I mean, and uh, uh, how involved are you in 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 the kids that you're teaching? Ooh, yeah, I I would say extremely involved. You know it. I think that for us, is it is it about winning all, at all costs? No, it's not. And I think that we really try to be character focused here and really focus on the person over the player approach because we believe and we're finding more and more that that character drives the process, which ultimately drives the result. And, you know, when you look at where they're coming from, you know, they win, they win, they win, but even in the industry, from a judging standpoint, it's easy to get caught up in, you identify your self-worth and just by the championships that you win, the titles, and being that we are a judge sport, you're always seeking that approval. So a lot of when they come onto the team, we're trying to challenge that mindset and develop into more of a team mindset because there's better things in life than just winning. And, and it's, it's exhausting. Winning is exhausting and it it can be a really big burden. And I think that, um, we try to focus so much on character and let, let winning be a, um, compliment to what we do behind the scenes, because I think, you know, it's, it's exhausting just to win all the time and be chasing titles and it doesn't fill you. You know, when we won the national championship, it was a huge highlight. I mean, even in my life and, and, and in our career, but the next day, it's like, all right, we got to do it again. How, how are we going to do it again? And it, it creates happiness, but it doesn't create joy. And I think that we're charged with that really as a staff and as coaches to say, it's a big life lesson too. You can't just chase all these titles and all these trophies and you don't take them with you when you leave the world, you know? So there's a lot bigger things to life um, when it comes to that. And so we definitely are, are teaching that. Well, also, I want to add to that, but that in the end, only one team gets to host that national, hoist that national championship trophy. And it doesn't, and it shouldn't mean that all those teams that didn't accomplish that feat that year, that that season was a failure. There was so much to take away from that season besides just lifting up that trophy. And, and there are a lot of teams out there that are in that boat rather than just the one that lifted that trophy at the end of the year. And so how, how, helping the girls understand that it's what they do, it's not who they are. And then also the lessons that they're learning day-to-day and participating on a team with an end goal is going to give them the tools necessary to succeed in the workplace once they graduate college with that degree and are able to pursue that career maybe they've been wanting for a long time and, and then ultimately make enough money to support their own horse habit. So those are all things that we hope to be teaching them along the way, uh, but also, you know, it, 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 you shouldn't put yourself worth in whether you won or you lost. It was that process and the, the relationships that you gained along the way that are truly important and learning how to work towards an end. And if it doesn't come through 
how to how to be okay with that and continue to pursue dreams. How I, I, I how cool and the big one being because there's a lot of conversation in the most recent years in the sports of horses and the concept of making it team sports and we can have a philosophical conversation about it all you want when you get through it it's an individual sport but you guys are doing something in a unique space in the industry that allows other cultural um, people skill set enhancements through team um, cultural components I'm not sure how to exactly say that but I think that that's very fascinating because then those achievements not only on an individual level go to a bigger cause um, and that's what you're kind of talking about, right? So I, it, it's it's really an interesting paradigm, especially when you put it into context of all horse activity. But you said a big one, Larry, which is um, the, supporting the horse habit. And one of the things, Jody, I hear you, because that's that's kind of like our time. And I think that there's an interesting spot that the interest the industry is in that that can actually start to be transformed and enhanced because can you make a living out of this industry through your career? Making an industry that's career building is different than a hobby activity career. And so those are the differences. And I see our industry making, we're, we're at that spot now. So it's fascinating to kind of watch it. I don't know if you guys want to go on with that, but I love the team. What you guys are doing at the university level is a phenomenal piece on character and human skills that can be relatable back to an individual competition. I, you know, I think that's, I think that's fantastic. And I know that when we had the exploratory call, I put this question to you and I, and I'm going to ask you again, just because I think it's fascinating and it's very interesting. And as a parent, Larry, you as a parent, Brian, you also, <laughs> I, I ask you, because it's, and we're going to get into some of the issues that you guys have as coaches and, and life lessons that you have to, that you're trying to pass on to, to the girls that you're teaching. What, what about parental involvement? Larry, you, you shared a story with me about another coach that, that I, th I thought was really funny. So Anyway, tell me, tell me how, how involved are the, are the parents with, with the girls that you're coaching and does it get in the way sometimes? Um, you know, when you move from, uh, competing as a junior high and high school student where your parents are driving you to all the events and they're actually, you know, writing checks to the trainers and your, you know, for lessons and for, you know, horse upkeep and hauling and all those things that we see. Um, the parents are very involved in the junior high and high school level and, and are used to calling the shots. You know, we're going to buy this kind of saddle. We're going to, you know, go to these type of shows. And and uh, when they get to college, sometimes there is a little bit of a transition that needs to happen in the parent's mind um, where where they have to realize, you know, I'm not calling those shots anymore, that this is an established program that's been going on for quite a while. And they do things for a reason. And it's because it what, what makes uh, that program successful and I, they need to learn to trust that process. And uh, one thing that I've learned in the 30 years that I've been coaching collegiately is when I was in my twenties coaching, the parents were much more apt to help me. I'm going to go here quotes here. Uh, help me with what I was doing. Uh, but now that I'm older than most of the parents of the girls on my team, um, I don't see that as much anymore. And they, you know, I think the history of being somewhere for a long time proves that that you do understand what you're doing. And 
And uh, so I haven't seen that as much, but I do see that in some assistants that, and Laura, I don't know if you could speak to this when you first started coaching, but uh, you know, when, when you first start coaching and you're younger, you know, when you get to be our age, it's, it's real easy to want to give advice and, you know, you don't know, you know, and so I'm going to help you with that. And, and sometimes it, it's helpful. And, and a lot of times it's not, um, you know, I think that it, the age of the coach, um, is, is, uh, not what should be focused on. It's what they can bring to that program. And, and, uh, definitely I know Laura at her age has already experienced and done a lot in collegiate uh, coaching, and we need to trust that process, uh, of, of what she's trying to do because she's learned through trial and error and the like, like the time that she's done it. Uh, and I think the parents need to do that as well. And, and I've told my two assistants, uh, uh, my, my jumping seat assistant is, is a few years younger than Laura and, and uh, I've told both of them, if there ever becomes parental involvement that you're uncomfortable with, pass it on to me. I'm more than happy to take on those phone calls and talk to those parents and help them understand the process of how it all works because they're busy enough coaching in the arena day in and day out. And I'm more than happy to take that off of their plate. Uh, thankfully, we've got a great group of parents right now. Uh, and for the last few years, we've had really good parents, very supportive parents that, that understand and let us coach. Um, and so we're very fortunate and, and, uh, you know, hopefully that, that continued to, uh, change and be true for all the other programs out there. Well, Let me thank you. A, That's a, oh, go ahead, Brian. I'm sorry. Well, I wanted to, uh, where do the coaches come from in today's industry? I mean, it's it, where, how are coaches being developed to coach? That's not something you set out to do earlier in life. It's something that kind of just happens through opportunity or something right so i i'd love to hear from both of you especially since it's a relative how long's osu's equestrian program been in, been intact and then how do how do coaches become coaches well i'm going to take on the first question you asked um we i just finished my 24th year coaching here at oklahoma state and i started the program back in january of 1999 okay um and so um it, it, it's been done for 24 years, but I'll let Laura go ahead and talk about how the coaches uh, train for becoming a coach. Yeah, so it's a great question because when I was going to Texas A&M riding on their team, that was really when I became interested in coaching and I had the opportunity to go to grad school. And during my time at grad school, I helped volunteer coach the team. So I was out of eligibility at the time. I still was able to go to grad school. It was a great opportunity for me for a year just to, just to help the team and be an extra coach. I didn't get paid. Um, there wasn't any any big value to it, but experience. And so I think that's the best way that, that you know, somebody's interested in coaching. My, my advice is always go student coach for a year go volunteer coach for a year and and see what happens behind the scenes because there's so much that goes on and what the general public sees is oh man your job is so cool absolutely it is cool we love our job but what we do in the arena is such a small piece of it and the behind the scenes and in the office and the recruiting and oh my goodness there's just there's so much to it and so for me that that coaching at Texas A&M for a year was huge and before I graduated, um, I was able to, there was a position at the University of Georgia that was open. I applied thinking there's no way they're going to want um, somebody without, ex you know, without big experience to come in. And 
I went and interviewed and got the job before I graduated. So I was really blessed with that. And But the jobs in collegiate equestrian in terms of coaching are really far and few between. You know, okay. I mean, there's there's not a lot of openings. And when it happens, you got to jump on it. And so I would say that it's it's unheard of to have somebody that just comes in to the coaching realm without college, some kind of college level experience and some kind of experience knowing, you know, even being an athlete first, for right. sure. Well, and one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of the coaches that um, are head coaches and assistant coaches now within our organization were college athletes themselves in this sport. Um, and And to me, you know, and of course, I didn't compete in the sport of equestrian. My background was in rodeo when I went to college um, and I got into the performance horse side of things after college. But um, to see these coaches come through with actual athlete athlete experience, that that's very valuable because they know what an athlete goes through. They know what it's like to make the starting roster and not, and they understand all those things. And so I think it's very beneficial we have had a few people from the industry step into the coaching arena. Uh, I know Baylor had uh, Cindy Walquist in there for a number of years, and her and her husband had trained within the corn horse industry for a number of years. And and she'll tell you, as well as others that have come in from the industry without competing, the learning curve is pretty steep. And there's about two or three years in there when you first start coaching collegiately that that uh, – there's a lot of learning that needs to go on as far as the NCAA rules and how to function with a team of 40, 50, 60 privileged 18 to 22 year old girls. And oh, Laura said it right. The, the arena <laughs> part is the easy part. Um, and so, you know, you filled a lot of phone calls from those people who don't know what it's like to, to function within a team that's that big. And, and, uh, you know, we just try and help each other out and help them to understand that, uh, the easy part is in the arena. It's all that other stuff that you need to figure out what worked best for you in that program that you're in. Well, that is, that's a great, that's a great, great answer. And yeah, I can't even imagine that much estrogen in one, in one spot <laughs> anyway, but fill the trailer you know, with I, all those mares. Yeah, oh yeah. my goodness me. Yeah. It's like, I, yeah, I, uh, and I just, I just got thinking about that from a number standpoint, you know, every, every football team has a, has a position coach. I mean, heck they'll have two dozen coaches and, and you get three, you know, for 50 girls. It's eh, numbers aren't the same. I mean, that's, 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 uh, that keeps you up late at night. Tell me what you, t- tell me what you guys see is, I, I don't, it's not about a specific number, but what are some of the hurdles that the university NCEA program on a national level, are there hurdles in front of you in the horizon or not? Is it a limitation to coaches because there aren't as many programs? I don't know. Uh, do you have them? And if you do, what are a few of the big ones? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. And is Title IX a hurdle? Because, I mean, fundamentally, this is my opinion. I'm not trying to get into university athletics and Title IX regulatory functions, but... I, Jody and I have always been strong proponents that one of the best things of the horse world and the horse sports world is that the horses don't care about what gender the rider is. It cares about the rest of your character. So I, I think that that's a fascinating component. Then when you put it in the amateur athletic components and you got the things like what we were talking about with Title IX, now you got to split men and women. I don't know, but are there some hurdles as far as a 
university athletic program and growth to it that you guys would see? I, I think the main one is, you know, continuing to grow this sport collegiately um, under that NCAA umbrella, getting new universities to add uh, the sport because those universities that have it are enjoying the program on their campus because generally the student athletes are very academically driven already. So as you're bringing student athletes into an athletic department, you know, like last last spring, or excuse me, last fall, we had 15 girls that had a 4.0 grade point. Wow. And then we had 17 yeah. others above a 3.5. So half of our roster was above a 3.5 grade point average. So the university loves that. Wow. Uh, the other thing that I like to make sure and mention to athletic departments that are considering the sport is our attrition rate is very low. And it's because we are able to put the girls on horseback multiple times in a week, if not five days a week, um, and and provide them opportunities in the sport that they love while they're pursuing their college education. And so our goal is to educate those universities. And uh, the challenge is, is we've been around quite a while now, and, and we're kind of like that house on the corner that hasn't sold yet, um, that somebody thinks something's wrong with it, but we just need to continue to educate those universities. There's really nothing wrong we just hit a couple of hurdles uh, along the way that kind of slowed down the growth, like the economy in 2008 and then COVID, you know, all these things where universities are trying to balance a budget and adding new sports is one that they don't really want to do if they don't have to. Right. So if they do for Title IX, in other words, they don't want to drop a men's program. So what they need to do to be compliant with Title IX is add a women's program. We want to make sure that this sport is one that they even consider uh for the university. Um, you know, that's the main one. I think I'll let Laura go ahead and speak to one or two others that might be there. Yeah. I mean, Larry nailed it. You know, I think, I think that we, we talk a lot on it within our coaches association about how we need to grow and get better. And, you know, for example, anything from, you know, making our judges system or officiating system better to, um, shortening our three and a half hour meet times down to two to less than three hours just so we can get televised you know educating our our crowd on um what they're looking at how this how this is judged and why it's subjective and what why did that girl lose her point versus why did she win her point so there there's a there's a big education component that that we're missing and needing to enhance too um and looking at expanding to commentary as well so you know, we could even get into the sponsorship piece, too. There's a lot of room for opportunity in that within NCEA. So, well, we're, we're going to get into that in a second. Yeah, but before we exactly. go, because you bring up a couple key spots there, hang on, um, um, which is on the presentation of your competition. And I hear you, and Jody and I are large proponents on this one as well. Presenting the competition to an audience is a big one, and the horse world is terrible at it. And is anybody noticing what the NB, the NBL National Baseball League is now doing? Which they put new rules in place, which is on the pitcher and the batter, which is all about speeding up the game, which is all about keeping an audience engaged. And I find that fascinating. There's some AI stuff in there too that Jody and I are going to spend some time in. But you're on a big one, which is because those economic opportunities, when you when you bring a final product, I don't care if it's at the amateur level or the professional level, if you bring a quality sports product, 
is there plenty of economics to be capitalized on? And that answer is yes, all day. And that's exactly what you're talking about, Laura. So I think that that's fascinating, including the commentators. Time and commentators are a big one, which would allow you. Now that leads us to the um, NIL, the name and license component. And we all know, you know, the NCAA uh, gambling, all of that stuff. But when you talk about sponsorships, because now you're talking about it from an OSU institutional level having rights to presentation of competition versus all the way down to the individual and or team. And so what does that mean to you guys in today's time? And by how do you manage your way through that? (laughs) Like drinking through a fire hose. It it really is. Um, This name image likeness thing is happening in our sport uh, as well as all of the other sports. And, and uh, it's awesome that the student athletes can benefit off of their their name and their image um, and while they're doing their sport. Um, and, it, you know, there's really a lot to it. We're very fortunate right now that the rules say that we can't be involved too much within that as coaches. And it kind of helps us because we're already busy enough. We already have a full time job. But to add sponsorships for student athletes to that is a whole other thing. And. We're very fortunate here at Oklahoma State that the university hired a person to manage that with all the sports. His name is Barry Hinson. He's been in collegiate athletics forever, uh, coached basketball at, at Division One level, and, and just understands all those parts of it. And he's able to focus solely on that name image likeness point part. So if we have a girl on our team that wants to get involved in that, we give them his number and we say, give him a call and he'll help you out. And we're very fortunate that we don't have to be involved in the day-to-day of that. But, you know, it's it's a whole big thing with collegiate athletics, as everybody's probably hearing. And and uh, we're happy for the student-athletes. But, uh, again, we need to bring them back down to reality and say, if you want to make money with NIL, you've got to be successful in your sport. And in order to be successful in your sport, you've got to practice hard, work hard, and make sure that your focus is in the right areas. And if they do that, then the opportunities will come more so than if they just think they're going to become popular and then they're neglecting the hard work that they need to put into succeeding horseback. Yeah, that's 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 excellent. And I and I this stuff is is much more Brian's department than I am. Like the NIL, it's like he's he he I mean, he's the guy. <laughs> but I, I and I just I wanted to back up just a second if I could, just because I from from guys that are Brian at my age that have you know spent 40 plus years in the horse business and made a living doing it and you know being actively involved in it I just want to touch a little bit um and because I can speak from a horseman's standpoint OSU's horse program I, I mean there the the you can't have a horse program without a horse right and and I think that the care that the intercollegiate horses get, I, OSU is the only, that's the only spot I can speak for because that's the only place that I've seen the actual care that goes into the livestock. And it's it's phenomenal. I mean, the veterinary care, the, the fact that the aged horses that you have, the ages of the horses that you have that are still competing. I mean, we get carried away talking about the girls, but, you know, you can't get in a car race unless you got a car to drive, right? And yeah. so the horses are just, I mean, they're, they, OSU's got such a great horse program, and, the, and, and it's a phenomenal job that you guys do, not just taking care of the kids, but taking care of the horses. And I, I, I mean, we could talk for a day about it, but could you tell us a little bit how you get them? I mean, how, how, how do you get your horses? I mean, where, where do they come from? Yeah, I, it's, it's definitely, um, we're, we're fully on donations 
And so anytime somebody is looking at donating their horse, the, the, the benefit to them is a tax write-off. And of course we, we sell the benefit too. I mean, your horse is getting a second life, great care from so many girls, great care from the program. Um, so a lot happens where we find horses is through our connections. So we might get trainers or um, different people within the industry that know us and know what our program's about and how we care for them. Call us up and say, you know, hey, I've, I've got this old industry show horse. He's got some soundness issues. Maybe I can't sell him. Um, he doesn't really pass a vet check, but this this is an issue that's that can be maintained through our good vets on our side. Um, and that we can get some more life out of them. And so it's a it's a great program in terms of that donation process. And so we'll put them on a once they once they come here, we'll put them on a 30 day trial. And so it's still that horse is not ours, but it's we're testing it, putting it through the program to make sure it's going to be a win win situation for both sides of the fence. It's going to be a good situation for that potential donor. And it's going to be a horse that's beneficial for, for us and our program. Once we, once we move past that, we say, okay, this, after these 30 days, this is going to work. We might run it through a pre-purchase exam just to make sure that the issues are going to be able to be maintainable for us. Um, and then we go through the paperwork process, which then in turns the appraisal goes through our foundation and then they get sent, um, the information for their, for their taxes. So that's how our donation process works. Let let okay. me ask on let me ask on that one. How regulated is the horse in the competition? Because and the point is drugs, medications, all of that stuff. Because having manageable um, biomechanical functions in the horse, and everybody's knowing all of that. And I don't know. We didn't have it when I came through uh, colleges. So. I'm really curious on that one because I'm assuming allowing the horse to have more latitude to use modern medicine and science is allowable and not being too restrictive on that. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And, um, but one thing collegiately that we've tried to do is embrace what the industry is doing as well and try and stay close to what the industry mandates. Now we don't have, drug testers coming to our meets, you know, and testing. And we did have them at the national championships one year come through uh, just because the USEF is our governing body. And in order to stay in compliance with the USEF, we have to allow them to come in every now and again and do that. And they did a few years back come to our national championships with the drug testing team. And and we were very fortunate that, uh, you know, all the horses were competing and, and happy and healthy. Um, but as far as the maintenance goes for soundness, we're very fortunate that we have good vets that help us keep them as sound as possible. And like Laura said, um, you know, our vets know that when we bring them a pre-purchase uh, exam candidate, uh, which is how the industry understands it, they know that they have a decision to make to where when they do that evaluation, they can say, yes, I think I can help you keep this horse sound right. for a few years or a number of years. Or there have been a couple of times where they're like, you know what? I can't, I, right. I will not be able to keep this horse sound for very long at all. And that's when we say, you know, thank you for considering us, but we're not going to be able to use this horse here because we don't need any more horses out there that we can't use. You know, we've, we've got a couple that have retired and, and they've earned that. Uh, but we don't want to take them in as a donation that we have to retire right away because of that. 
So if they, the vets say, yes, we think we can help you keep this horse uh, sound and moving uh, in the way that it needs to, to perform the events that you do, then we are comfortable going ahead and accepting that donation and doing what the vet recommends as far as keeping our horses sound. Uh, we have good sponsors too. Um, and I don't know if you mentioned sponsors on these, on this, uh, sure. this show of yours, but uh, we've had a recent sponsorship come on that's helped with us uh, as far as the soundness of our horses and extending the, the longevity of the age of the horses that we use in our program. Good for you guys. Um, so the, the bottom line is you guys are following the collegiate activity is following USEF rules and regs on that regard, correct? Okay, so you didn't have to further modify it accordingly, and then the rest of it's about what's manageable. So yeah, no, I, that's, and that's I'll, I'll even add, I'll even add to it too, just from the training standpoint. You know, we we do have more flexibility when it comes to the aids that we have for our horses. So we can go in and we can show, you know, a, a age horse. I can put it two hands. I can put mm -hmm. a cabasson on one. I can put a martingale on one. We don't, but but it is allowed. We put a belly band on. Um, things like that. So we we are we do have more flexibility in the collegiate world to do that. So if you know, for instance, we get donated, you know, a green a green two year old or three year old, um, we can progress that horse in training, but to get an exposure in in our world, um, you know, I can like I said, I can put it in a saffle, yeah. I can put it two hands, I can we can we can make some adjustments with it where we may not be able to do that in industry. Right. Like that. And take your time. So that having time to your advantage is a, would be a big one. So and right. take your time. That's huge. Yep. It it is. And I, I will say to people that may be listening, um, I've seen some of these older gildings compete and I'm telling you, they enjoy their job because if they if they didn't, there's no way that they would compete at the level that they do with, with the girls on them. And I would have absolutely zero issue with donating a nice older horse to a university to go through this program because I know the care that they're being, that's going to go into them and the, and the training program that's, that, that goes on. I, I mean, I've seen it. So I didn't mean to, uh, I didn't mean to get us so far off track, but I, I just felt that it was an important topic. So, no, I think anyway. it's a great one, but it fits into the, because the conversation in the industry always says about life afterwards for the horse and what we're talking about. And you and I talk about a lot, Jody, which is the, the different levels in the industry and the university would be one of those levels. And so having modifications, including officiating, but when you talk about equipment as well, that's where as an industry, I always get on. We've got to do better with breaking ourselves up and servicing it at the spot that those levels are focused at. We're talking about the university collegiate program. Um, because they're a walking example of all of that stuff. And so life for the horses, how cool. I'm assuming, well, so if, if those horses come through your program and they get finished, do they get to retire there? Or do you, where do they, do they get an orange blanket and turn out or what, what, what happens? Well, we're very fortunate um, here at Oklahoma State University where we have 44 acres right here south of our equestrian complex. Uh, that we've deemed our retirement pasture. You know, we've got nice cool. pipe and keepable fencing over there. The grass gets belly high certain times a year. Um, you know, that they, they, they get that retirement that they so, so much deserve. 
However, we've got a few of these horses, and Jody referenced it a little bit. You know, some of these horses really enjoy their retirement, but there's other horses that they still want some sort of a job. And even though their joints and their age won't allow them to do it at the level that we need anymore or what the industry requires, you know, there are different uh, places they can go. Um, and like uh, there's a therapeutic riding center that's down the road. I've been on the board of directors there for, you know, 12, 13 years now. And we have a couple of our retired horses that are thriving in that therapeutic center because it gives them a job and they're still being interacted with and, and uh, they stand at the gate and holler for you if they don't yep. see you for a day or two. You know, they just, there are some horses out there that are just that way. And there is a horse that came to our program that he was an NRHA money earner. We had him donated to our program. He was the collegiate reigning horse of the year, a couple different times, three different times, actually. Then once he was unable to do that, we used him in the horsemanship for a little while. But then when I moved him to uh, the therapeutic riding center, he competed at the Special Olympics and was a Special Olympics gold medalist. Right. So awesome. he excelled in every level that he's competed at from the industry to the therapeutic riding. And he's still one of the favorite horses there at Turning Point Ranch. See, Jody, there's still hope for us yet. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to get turned out in a pasture. I don't want to be competing. I don't, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's that's really good. And thank you for that, you two. I mean, that's just that's really good. Um, I'm going to we always end up running short of time here. And we've got some uh, really good material here that I want to cover yet, too. So. Um, with the purse money that's growing, economics increasing, rider earnings, uh, how is this going to affect your program? We talked a little bit about it, but student eligibility, um, how you and your students manage this activity across the four years that your girls are there. Go ahead, Lauren. You go for it. You want me to say go? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, they're, they're still amateur athletes and the NCAA has its rules about what where you are and how you maintain your amateurism. Um, And so you have to know those rules, but you also have to know the rules of the organization which you're competing in, you know, the NRHA amateurism rules, the AQHA amateurism rules. Um, So it's up to each individual to make sure that they're aware of that. One thing that we do uh, as coaches through the recruiting process is we encourage our recruits to keep uh, accurate records of the expenses that they have for competing in the industry and then the, the earnings that they might make. Uh, and we ask them to keep accurate records. That way, if they are ever audited by the NCAA questioning their amateurism, they just can't make more money in the year than it costs them to compete in them. And those of us that have been in the horse industry for very long understand that that's a very small number of people that actually make more money at the end of the year than they paid out to, to compete. To do it. But keeping those accurate records is very important uh, you know, it's just like the, I always tell them, it's just like the IRS, you know, you want to keep your records just in case you're audited. Most of us will never be audited and I'm going to knock on wood over here so that I hadn't been yet, but I want to make sure that I have those records there and available should that ever happen. And that's the same way they need to look at it as far as proof for amateurism. But I don't think we've ever ran into a girl and we've had world champions and, and, uh, you know, girls that have won a lot of money in the horse industry. But none of them have even been close to losing their amateur status as far as the NCAA is concerned. I think that's fascinating because that component in the industry today is a growing one. Bear with me. Because we've had a very active, in the advanced Western side, um, they've been leading the fact that non-pros 
can compete and earn significant prize money. That's been around for a while. Then comes the pressure to create an amateur division outside of the non-pros. That doesn't make sense to me. And so all of that fits into this component um, on where that kind of plays. And I think that that's interesting when you look at the industry on a larger level, because then again, we're talking about servicing the industry in the segments that they should be, but with the growing purse economics, which I think is very healthy for the industry. It's how do we divvy up those purses? And when you put too much emphasis on the non-pro or the amateur side, that's where I think you start to tip yourself in the wrong direction. But what you're saying is you, that's not a growing problem with your students yet. Is that correct? We, we haven't seen that yet. No. Okay. That's good. That's actually good. Which then just goes back to the rest of it, Jody, which is, uh, a hobby industry versus a I'm making a living industry. So we'll, we'll go on with that one later. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, cool. How about, you know, let's talk a little bit. We touched on this a little bit too, but how about the recruitment and career development? You know, what about that? How are you going to recruit? Where are you finding your riders? I mean, you know, Laura, I've seen you in action at a few of the shows, so I kind of have an idea about that. But when can you approach the girls? I mean, how... Talk about that a little bit for me, please. Yeah. So, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, we can't have contact with the girls until their incoming junior year of high school. June 15th is the date. And so, you know, usually that June 15th date, coaches are calling up, making phone calls, making that first initial contact, um, which all of that has to be recorded um, for NCAA records. Um where we're recruiting, you know, we're going to be recruiting in all the major horse shows. So NRHA Derby, NRHA Fraternity, the NRBC um, now, and it's great because it's in our backyard. I mean, we'll go to Congress um, for the horsemanship side, AQHA, PHA World, um, the, all the majors. And we're blessed because it's we're hub central here in Oklahoma. We've got Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Um, back to back. So it's, it's, it's easier for us. Um, our jumping seat coach, she'll fly around to the East coast side, more of the, the bigger USEF, um, events for, for recruiting purposes. And so I'll, I'll tell you that, you know, that the easiest part when it comes to recruiting is finding skills. You can find, you can spot skills. You can, you can spot talent what's what's harder to do is investigating what kind of person they are because you want to find out okay how are, how are they going to be are they going to be a good teammate how do they handle pressure how do they talk to their parents how how do they handle a situation that it didn't go their way mm -hmm. um they didn't make the finals what what does that look like and so a lot of times you know i might be at the at the warm-up pen watching, not just in the, in the arena. I might be talking to their horse trainer, but it's, it's, you don't want to just talk to that horse trainer. You want to be talking to people that, but that know and have been around really around that girl because that horse trainer is the one that's getting paid. <laughs> right. So you want to be talking to, to a lot of different people and doing your homework. And then when we invite them in, if we invite them in on an official visit, um, we've get 48 hours with them. So we try to, of course, roll out the red carpet. All schools do. We put them up in a hotel. We bring, you know, their family in. We take them to the, you know, football game. 
um, on the field, all those exciting things. But during that time, you're you're really looking at how does that kid interact? Um, how are they interacting with your team? Are they a good fit? Do do they have the the character ability to be successful, or are they just about themselves? Are do they just care about their own success, or are they going to be a good team player? So all that is is huge in the recruiting process. What a whole nother selection on trying to pick a prospect. But my question is, the 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 point in the industry is where's the next generation? My question is, you are there are enough youth to go look for what you're doing? Yes, no. Yeah, um, we'll get anywhere from three to four hundred videos a year of girls that are wanting to come uh, be a part of our program. And with Fenty on our roster, you're looking at twelve to, uh, excuse me, twelve to thirteen freshmen a year right. um, that we're bringing in, and that many are graduating or should be if on a on a normal cycle of things. Um, and so when you're looking at twelve to thirteen spots and three to four hundred inquiries, in addition to the ones that you might see when you're on the road judging or or recruiting, um, you know, right now we really wish that we could grow this sport as far as number of schools uh, that sponsor it because there are enough student athletes out there. It's just finding the ones that work best within your program, which makes it a little tougher, a little trickier. And and I think different things work different for for each program out there. You know, Oklahoma State has has its things that we value as far as what we want in a student athlete. Yes, you've got to ride at a very high level. But you've got to meet some certain character traits that we see or we have found that are successful here, where other schools might find other traits like that. The other thing that's really important and we put a lot of emphasis on is making sure that the student athletes feel at home here in Stillwater. You know, if they're a big city metropolitan type girl, well... That's not what we are here. Um, we're not very far from those things. You know, we're an hour away from Tulsa and Oklahoma City. But if you like the big city life, you know, it might not be the place for you. However, if it is a place that you feel like you can really feel at home for four years and, and really feel like the way we run our program is a part of your family, then those sorts of things, if they want that, if they see that as valuable and we think that they have what it takes to be successful, that's where you see the wins on both sides. Uh, as far as the recruiting process is concerned. Mm-hmm. that's uh, I think that's interesting. Country in the Northeast is very different than country in Oklahoma. So that's basically the way you said that. And if people aren't, I hear you, but, you know, the the and I'm not trying to be um, overly judgmental on it, but you guys are in Tornado Alley. And so people that haven't, well, I mean, y- your average windy day is like a major storm to most other people. So I hear you on all of that. And so um, anyways, that's 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 interesting. Well, yeah, that is. So let's, let's just, as long as we're on that line, let's, let's jump ahead that four years that you're talking about and, and tell me where, where most of the girls are, are, are going after they graduate. I mean, are they, are they trying to stay in the ag or the horse business or do you find that it's diverse? They're going every different direction. I mean, help us with that a little bit. I think that's interesting as heck. Where, where, what are they going to do for a living? Right. I would say it's diverse more than anything. Um, we do have a few that want to stay in the ag, in the area of ag, or in the horse industry, or or whatever that might be. But I would say the majority are going so many different other places. As I look back over the years that I've been coaching, 
you know, I can't tell you the numbers of doctors, lawyers, dentists, um, you know, business, uh, you know, owners, uh, just all across the board uh, of where they've excelled and succeeded in the industry. And then now I'm starting to see a lot of them that are participating as amateurs again, uh, you know, and they have kids of their own and their kids are showing in youth and they're showing as an amateur. And, and it's just fun to see that. But Jody, to answer your question, I say they, whoever is looking at writing in college needs to first say, what do I want to be when I grow up? And then make sure that that university has a major that will help you get to that place. And then if they have a collegiate equestrian team that competes at a high level, that's just icing on the cake. But you need to keep the reality of getting your degree first. And the team is just uh, an added benefit for you. So all of your team people are across all the academics. They're not just in the ag school. They'd be in medical, pre-med, whatever, right? Yep. Okay. Okay. And it makes sense. But when you were talking about 4.0 GPOs, I mean, shoot, you throw me back out the window. So um, <laughs> anyway, that I, I think that that's fascinating. But career, career development's a big one in the industry at the moment on all the supply lines and the next generation. Those are big topics all the way across the board. Um, and, and the next generation and getting them not only exposed, but involved in the livestock and the ag side of the world. Um, what does all of that mean? So you're actually helping by saying it's actually quite healthy. I'm going to take us up a notch. Give us your view on how the horse industry is kind of doing in today's time. You're both very active, very knowledgeable. How is a horse industry, horse show industry, how are we doing? Uh, Laura, you've got some notes there. You got plenty to talk about, huh, Laura? No, yeah. no, I don't. I mean, I, I think that, you know, our horse industry, of course, is changing. I know I'm the youngest one on this call, so I can't speak to the, the biggest timeline, but I think it's it's definitely it's definitely evolving and constantly changing. I think that, you know, when you look at payout higher, the price to play is higher. We're becoming so specialized, I think, in, in, in our events versus, you know, the, the big all-around world. Um, you know, we're, our, our trainers are getting better and more specialized. The breeding quality is getting better and more specialized. And even dropping it down to a college level, you know, you look at how we recruit. You know, we, we're recruiting specialized girls and those four events. Mm -hmm. You know, when we go out to recruit, it's can this girl be the best at the event that, that we need, or is she currently the best? And so a lot of it, you know, goes along with the industry, how the industry is evolving, but even us from a college athletic standpoint in, in equestrian, we're really looking at um, that individualized um, sport as well. So definitely changing. And do you, are we doing, is that a good change? Are we, are we growing and moving forward? Or especially, I, Laura, from your point, being the younger one looking, I think that view is highly valuable. I, I'm just curious so that I, again, Jody and I talk about this a lot. So it's, it's not how we see it. It's how others see it. And so having a more well-rounded view is why we ask the question. Well, you know, I, I think as, as a horse industry, we need to continue to focus on that grassroots entry level, you know, portion of our horse shows. Uh, you know, I sit on the Oklahoma Core Horse Board of Directors, and one of the things that we talk about all the time at all of our meetings are, 
are how do we continue to encourage growth and membership and and what we found is is being able to host introductory shows and maybe host some clinics uh you know these people have may have never participated in a horse show before and they load their horse in the trailer and they come and they're you know they just don't know what uh, they're supposed to be doing or what you know each event entails and so offering clinics there um you know at, at a reduced rate or free of charge a part of the horse show to to help them be successful to teach them the few things that they might need to know to communicate better with their horse those are things where we need to continue to put our efforts now i know what i just said was probably not popular for those that are professionals in the industry which is donate time and and offer free clinics but but if we want to keep keep our industry growing and and keep introducing new membership um you know those are the things that we have to take the time to do i mean you've got to give back in some way to an industry that has given so much to you and so we need to make sure we're focusing on that and keeping that as a priority in our conversations at our meetings that we have within our industry. Yep. No, I hear you. Yeah, I do. I think that's, I think that's, uh, that's a really good answer. Um, and I, I, I couldn't agree more. Brian and I, we discuss this all the time with the reigning horse and, you know, with the, with the Yellowstone advent and the, you know, the, the TV coverage that the rain cow horse and the cutting and the rainings have had and the phenomenal growth that it's gone through and, and, uh, you know, sometimes in our HA, I think they, uh, just personal opinion, I mean, not, you know, they, they, uh, they want to, uh, the futurity and maybe the top five money earners or those slots are the ones that get all the attention. But, you know, I've always maintained that unless you have another generation coming up behind them pretty soon, you're, you're going to run out of people. Right. So anyway, that's just a, an opinion. So, Okay, so the fact that this program wasn't even in existence, you know, 30 years ago or thereabouts, I guess, Larry, that's pretty close, right? Where, where, what's the next step? Where is it going to go now the university, at the university level? What, I mean, do you, I mean, if you have some growth, I mean, fantastic. If, it's, if it stays the same, do you see the programs growing where they're at? Or, I mean, obviously, you kind of got to stay where you're at. I'm just, I'm curious about what you and Laura think that the, the program's going to go at the university level. Well, hopefully that we can still prove to each of these universities that sponsor equestrian at this level that it's that we're valuable to them. You know that it there's that it's good that they have us now. Um, you know, the the collegiate athletics is a landscape that that is ever changing. Um, you know, that you have your Power Five conferences, which ten years ago nobody was talking about that like they are now. Uh, you have potential realignments happening all over the place. Every time you turn on the TV, there's another school that's leaving their conference and going to a different conference. Um, you know, there's a lot of changes that are happening with collegiate athletics. And one thing we have to do within our programs is is continue to prove our worth. And and with that, I talked about it earlier about the quality student athletes that we're bringing um, to our programs. They're, they're the attrition rate. In other words, the transfer portal, that's something we hadn't mentioned yet on this call, but that's huge in all sports. And we have it within our sport. They can they can enter the transfer portal. We just don't see the numbers in our sports transferring or in our sport transferring like they're seeing in some of the other uh, collegiate sports. And so those kind of things I would think are very important uh, to athletic departments and the way the girls represent themselves. The other thing that's very helpful, and we're very fortunate, and I've seen it here and I've heard that at other universities that sponsor Equestrian, it's the same way. Our parents are our biggest supporters as well, our biggest donors. 
uh, we just dedicated a new team building here uh, on on our facility here, the Pedagogue Hall Equestrian Center. Um, and our team building um, was it was a donation from two parents in particular that that donated the money for us to be able to have this facility. And and that's something that in other sports you might not have that parental um, investment. You know, them helping the program grow like that. And when an athletic director is looking at two sports and one of them can come with its own set of donors, its own donor base that can help with facilities, can help with equipment, can help with travel, I would think that would be appealing because, you know, it's like going to that turnip, you know, you, you can only suck it so dry. And so you want to make sure that you uh, let the athletic departments know those things and, and that would keep them interested in continuing to fund and and recognize the the importance of having equestrian teams on their campus. Yeah, I, I would add. I mean, you know, I think we we have a great product. Become a Division One athlete and get an education. And you know, I I would hope that that would keep growing. But I think as a as an NCEA association, uh, we're we're coaching run currently, coaching led, and. In order to grow, like I talked earlier on the program, you know, we need to look at our officiating process being better. You know, how do we how do we engage our fans more? How do we how do we get out there on ESPN and shorten our meets and you know create that sponsorship? All that's really important, and I think that it really starts with the what's going to be best for for us, the we before the me, because as a coaching group, you know, we all get in our own lane, our tunnel vision and focused and we get running and we forget sometimes what's best for the association to grow. And we just get so honed in on what's, what's best for, for us, our program, or just for me. And so I think that's probably goes hand in hand with the horse industry as a whole, right. And how Absolutely. to grow. And Jody talks about all the time of the answer lies between, you know, in the, the middle the old and the young <laughs> and it's in the, it's middle, in yeah. the middle and yeah. so and that's that's where we need to take a big step back even as association and say okay right now we're we're spinning our wheels for us to grow what's it going to take and what's best for we not me i think that that's huge and let me I, I hear you and we could spend a whole session on just this topic we won't but because we're running out of time uh the the point I think is fascinating. And let me ask this question. The NCEA is a organizational component. So you guys are structurally organized across the university systems that have female teams that you're competing. Is that correct? Correct. And now my question is how hard is it to change inside the NCEA organization? Because you can, you would have, I'm using logic and I don't know, but you can adopt rules that are already existing like USEF, like AQHA, like NRHA. You can pull those things in and use them as you wish, but you could also step into new tor new territory if you wished. I'm going to go into the officiating in a spot. My big question is, how easy is that to institute change or does it get stuck and slow down because it's a large national organization, that kind of stuff. I use bureaucracy. I have a lot of government experience. I know it well. Does it get stuck in there or is it easy to change and modify? You know, 
change is hard and especially for for people that have been doing something the same way for a long time and right but the thing that we have to keep reminding ourselves is, you know, what is the definition of insanity? And it's doing the same thing over and over, but expecting a different result. And so I think that's what Laura is referencing is we need to look at what can make it better. And if even if it makes us a little uncomfortable, we need to be willing to at least try those things and get out of our box. Now, we'd like to say that our that our coaches organization, our group that we work with to change the rules, I'd like to say that they're very open but when it comes to actually implementing that change, just like anywhere, it's hard. Right. It's it's, it's easy. Things change. It's easy to talk about it, but doing it takes the hard work. That's basically what you're getting at. And I only bring it up because it's come up a few times. And when you talk about modified, it goes back to the philosophy of as an industry, what we're trying to do is do it all. And, and you're right, Larry. Um, when you, you know, the, the, definition of insanity is repeating the same thing and expecting different results. So, you know, especially being in an academic upper level university, research and innovation should be kind of on the forefront. And so, so I would just see that as a pretty cool opportunity. Uh, I think it's a fascinating spot, but then comes doing it. And officiating is a big one because I, we hear this all the time. Jody and I have a high level of that kind of stuff. We've done a lot of research in it in 20 years. But my, the point's this. Shifting the modern horse show competition industry from a highly subjective decision to a more objective decision is not hard. It's not. That's a fact. What's hard is who's going to do it. And who's going to lead it? Because that's what's hard in the industry is so reluctant on change that there lies the quandary that we all find ourselves in. So it's just a, it's an interesting piece. It is. It is indeed. Um, you know, there's, like I said, we could talk. There's so many more questions that just keep popping into my head here right now as we're thinking about this. But, you know, like I said, our time frame, it always evaporates on us. I mean, it goes like crazy. So, Brian, do you have any other questions that you think that you need to? Well, yes, because we could go on forever, but we're not. So um, at, I think we hit some key things. Again, we allow ourselves the every episode we have done so far at the Cowboy Office has less, left us at the exact same spot. The dynamic, fascinating conversation leads us at a spot for wanting more. So I think, and 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 we do. We're gonna, you know, we've got other colleagues like you all that are in the university systems, and and we're gonna spend. Jody and I are gonna spend some time from the Cowboy Office doing more of these shows across the industry on a national level because how do we one get the great horse industry exposed to more people and then also how do we help ourselves to change because that's the hard part so it's a little bit of our driving spot so no i'm i'll wrap it up um for all the yeah. obvious reasons and uh larry laura we can't thank you enough um uh, believe me we I've learned something today. So there's hope for me and Jody. Um, yeah, there really is. Yeah, right. The old dogs can you know, still go out and learn a new trick too, right? Uh, it's crazy. But no, we can't thank you guys enough. I mean, 
Um, it's, uh, you know, OSU, like I said, I've, I've had the opportunity to, to visit there many times. It's an awesome school. And, um, like I said, we just can't thank you two enough for your, for sharing your knowledge and, uh, and the time. I mean, I, I know that there's going to be a lot of people that, that don't know anything about this program and, and it's, it's been enlightening. And, and I think we have room for, for maybe another one of these down the road too. Yes. Yes. Or two. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. So we do appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, uh, it we will again, okstate.edu. We can't thank you both enough. We thank your university. We thank all of your staff, everybody involved. Um, God bless you both. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, keep those girls herded and pointed in the right direction, Laura. So, um, um, Thank you. Um, and, and as always, to the audience, you can go to thecowboyoffice.com. We do want the audience to put your email in, stay in touch with Jody and I. Horses are very good for people. And until next time, enjoy the ride. Hey, and thank absolutely. You. It's, yeah, and until next time, thank you all. Stay in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Today's you so much for riding along with us today. Sign up at cowboyoffice.com a full-service agency that helps bring forward-thinking equine brands into the 21st century using digital skills and services such as website development, graphic design, social media, and media production such as the podcast you're consuming here today. Thank you so much for riding along with us today. Sign up at cowboyoffice.com to be the first to know about topics affecting the industry we love so much. You can reach out to us with topics you care about by finding us on TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and all podcast platforms. And remember, share this episode with someone that may enjoy it, because the more we can share our horses with others, the better our world will be.